Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 323 of the podcast for November 5th, 2018. My guest today is Davis Balistracci. I first met him at a conference a few years back where I heard him give um, a very spirited and insightful presentation. So it's a great combination in a speaker and a podcast guest. So I'm really happy to have him here with us today. We'll talk about a range of topics, including some of the key lessons that you'll find in his book, Data Sanity, A Quantum Leap to Unprecedented Results, which is in a second edition. That book, of course, has a much deeper dive than we can get into uh, here today. You might recognize Davis as a longtime columnist for Quality Digest, and today you'll hear his thoughts on topics including process behavior charts, W. Edwards Deming, Lean Six Sigma, and more. Uh, from his bio, uh, it says Davis has a BS degree in chemical engineering and an MS degree in statistics, yet he describes himself as a quote-unquote right-brained statistician. His Myers-Briggs profile is INFP, and he's a pipe organist who's done graduate work in conducting. So uh, maybe that's part of why I like Davis. I'm an INTJ, but I, I was quite serious about music uh, when I was growing up. Um, even though the joke says I'm not a musician, I'm a drummer. Um, no, I was a percussionist. But um, uh, you know, if if Davis and I lived nearby, maybe we would have ended up playing together with the, with the symphony and hopefully today's podcast is uh, it's maybe more like jazz improvisation but i hope you enjoy the discussion as much as i did if you want to find links to davis's website uh, his book and uh, where to find his quality digest articles videos and more you can go to leanblog.org slash 323 davis hi thank you for being a guest on the podcast how are you Good. I, um, and thank you, Mark, for having me. I always enjoy conversing with a respected colleague. Well, thanks. And, um, thanks. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to meet a couple years ago. Was it at uh, the Maryland World yep. Class? What's uh, uh, Jeff Fuchs and yep. Maryland World Class Consortium, right? Right. And he's moved on. Yeah. He's taken a, a role in the federal government for uh, Lean Improvement Department of Agriculture, I think. Yep. So Jeff and I share a hometown of Livonia, Michigan. Oh. Maybe once Jeff gets settled in, into his job, if he's allowed to, maybe we'll do a podcast with Jeff. Yeah. I gave a seminar there last year, actually. Yeah. In Livonia. Oh, and, oh really? Oh. Yes. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm glad, uh, glad you could visit, um, visit my hometown. Did you have, well, I, I won't get sidetracked asking you questions about Livonia. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about you. So can you introduce yourself, Davis? And, you know, uh, I'm curious, you know, how, how'd you get involved in quality improvement work? If you can sort of tell a bit of your career story. Yeah. Well, my bachelor's degree is in chemical engineering, master's degree in statistics. And um, when I got my master's at the time, which was around 1980, that's when it was an optimal degree, and there were lots of thriving industrial statistical groups. I started off at FMC, and I eventually ended up at 3M, where I had a seven-year career as an internal statistical consulting group to help with design experiments, et cetera. And um, my background made it very helpful to 
converse with engineers because I have the science background. Um, in 1983, though, at my first job at FMC, I, I got exposed to Deming's book, Quality, Productivity, and Competitive Posi and Position. And I was fascinated because I had been stymied as to why something that made so much sense to me as an engineer, statistics, in terms of helping people, got such fierce resistance as an internal consultant. So I noticed working points, I got fascinated, went to 3M, there was somewhat of a fascination there and they brought in Hiro Hakkabord for a seminar on statistical thinking. And that was a seminar that gave me the big aha. And I stopped being, shall for lack of a better term, a Deming gadfly, mm -hmm. which is so easy to get drunk and uneducated enthusiasm in your first reads of Deming. I finally got it and I finally saw how to start applying it. And that was when healthcare was really hot on TQM, CQI, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. This is still the 80s, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Late 80s. And um, I had a local uh, group, Park Nicollet Medical Center, 500 physicians, 20 um, locations. Their CEO was very high on Deming, medical mm -hmm. director. Uh, who I eventually ended up reporting to was just, he loved the stuff and he got it. And shall I say, we both cut our teeth and learned a lot mm -hmm. in those early yeah. years. And um, unfortunately, the medical director left. And you, you'll appreciate this. Um, healthcare organization, 500 physicians, always had a physician CEO. Well, their COO was a bean counter and they promoted him to CEO. Hmm. And they said, you know, you're the first non-physician CEO of this organization. He said, how are you going to deal with physicians? And he did say, easy. It's like giving my dog obedience training and using the choke chain liberally. Yikes. The, the new CEO, the right. ex bean right. counter. Yeah, well, still scary, scary. And he heard about my reputation. He said, people like you undermine me. And I found another job. What, what, what do you think the CEO meant by that? I don't know. Uh, he just <sighs> called me in his office and he said, you undermine me. Um, he was also physically shaking when he was talking to me. I mean, I'm a truth teller. And um, he didn't like, he liked yes men. Oh boy, did you like yes men. It sounds like a classic, uh, if you will, kind of command and control yeah. style manager and, 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 and somebody from your perspective who thinks for themselves and probably encourages others to speak for themselves. Um, they're the first ones that dictators round up, right? And especially telling them different ways to look at data. Yeah. Because he was big on trends and strong goals and draconian enforcement. Uh, and the interesting thing, Mark, this really got me into my lifelong, well, you know, my 20 year now affair with cultural psychology. The care there was outstanding. My former, and, and my medical director friend said, Davis, he said, I'm sorry to do this to you. I, I, can't, I can't work under this man, I'm leaving. He said, I'm 65 years old, my house is paid for, my kid is educated, I don't need this. He yeah. said, I'm very, very sorry. And then, you know, this conversation happened. But the care was excellent because Dr. Dewitt hired very, very well. Mm -hmm. So 
I went, I kept my care there and I went back and I had a, a frontline physician in urgent care. I had a sinus infection. And I said, Bob, this was two years into the new administration. I said, Bob, um, boy, your physician's lives must be terrible. I said, you've gone from a physician who liked Deming and now you've got this, you know, bean counter, tough goals, doesn't like physicians. And he looked at me, smiled, shrugged his shoulders. And he said, Davis, I come in, I see patients, I go home. Yeah. And, you know, they think there's all this stuff going on at the C-suite level. And to the front line, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to go home. And that really clicked with me. And so I became an independent consultant mm-hmm. in about uh, the year 2002. Yeah. In, uh, well, and, and, and there's so much lost potential, right, when somebody is put into that position. It reminds me of UAW workers at General Motors or even yes. some of the engineers yes. that I worked with 1995 to 1997. I come in, I do my, I run my machine, I go home. And instead of engaging people in, in anything that can really help make the organization better. Right, unless there's a longer term vision and it's like, well, you're trying to squeeze more work out of me. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't get it. And that's why you have to be, you have to be very, very careful. Um, and, and, you know, Ron Snee, for whom I have tremendous respect, kind of saw, define this thing called holistic improvement, works for any business at any level in the organization. And he said, every organization has a cash cow and it's called continual improvement. And he's right. But it was the Hackaboard seminar that really made that connection for me. And I started mm-hmm. to see it. And that's how I could back into healthcare because yeah. I give, you know, here I am an engineer, master's in statistics. I give grand rounds to frontline physicians. Now that is not in, you know, people don't envy me when I say I have that audience and I say, and I live to tell the tale. And they say, <laughs> Oh, doctors are going to be going in and out. They're going to leave early. They always stay. And I've had department heads come up to me and say, Davis, if data were presented to us in this way, we take care of it ourselves. They fight back, and I, and I get every audience I present to to laugh, and I bet you get this too. You present physicians this funny new way, SPC way of doing things, and they always blurt out, this isn't in line with rigorous double-blind clinical trial <laughs> research. It's a smokescreen because it's like, oh, geez, here's another way they're going to hammer me. And my reply is, no, doctor, nor could it be, nor should it be. This is different from rigorous clinical double-blind research. And what I say is the kind of statistics you're taught is, you know, enumerative estimation. We talk about this. It's like estimating a pond. I can sample a pond and find the average concentration of something. I say, well, what you do in a clinical trial, you turn that pond into a swimming pool, get rid of all the variation, and you have a treatment, control treatment. I said, now you make your conclusion. I said, but then you take that result from your swimming pool and you put it into a white water rapids. You can't sample that like a swimming pool. How do you sample? Right. Well, there's a whole process for that. And there is no consistent way to sample. Well, what's your objective in this white water rapids? Yeah. And that's what they can't understand. Or like Wheeler's famous one, you have lions in a zoo. You know, I can make some nice conclusions, but what if I go to San Diego Zoo or this? And then I go, 
test it in the African wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Wheeler does a good, really good job of explaining how kind of classical statistics is taught. I don't have a master's degree in statistics, but I've taken statistics classes in a master's program. And um, they don't, uh, those, those classic statistical methods make a certain number of assumptions that don't apply in the real world very well. The, 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 the assumption of a, a homogeneity within uh, a process or population, you could, you could explain this better than me. Yeah, and the ubiquitousness of the normal distribution, you know, right. when in doubt, call it normal. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know, like I said, you, you academic statistics is research. You you create a swimming pool by controlling all that nuisance variation. But what analytic statistics does, it takes that result and studies the manifestation of variation on that result. That's analytical statistics versus descriptive statistics would be one way of kind of comparing these categories. Well, of, descriptive of is what can I say about this specific patient? Enumerative, like a clinical trial, is say, what can I say about this specific group of patients? Hmm. And then analytic statistics, what can I say about the process that produced both the group, of, this group of patients and its results? Yeah. So, you know, like water rapids territory. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, there's other assumptions uh, where uh, I, I think one, one beauty of uh, just diving a little bit into process behavior charts versus all of the other types of P charts, C charts, and, and all, you know, the laundry list of different control charts, those different all control charts. Sorry? All seven of them. All seven of them. They make different assumptions about the underlying probability distribution, which may or may not at all be a real uh, a good assumption in the real world. And, and process behavior charts or XMR charts or wh whatever we call them are really robust regardless of what the underlying uh, process would be. We don't have to worry about things like distributions, right? No, that's correct. And sometimes I'll hit it, you know, and I, I've had a couple columns, I think, where I hit things from both angles to say, hey, look, you come to the same conclusion. And it's a knife. Busy people don't have time to learn seven charts. And then we get into how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Well, should I use this chart or that chart or that chart? When do I use it? And you've seen the famous complicated flow diagram that tells yeah. you. Yeah. I saw your eyes when I said that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, no, I've seen that a lot. And, and you know, I think, I mean, I, I taught a class on process behavior charts and uh, Six Sigma Master Black Belt after the class was reflecting and saying, this is a method that I could actually maybe get people to use because by the time I get to explaining the third of these umpteen control charts, I already lost people. They've yeah. tuned out. They're not going to own. So, um, and, um, oh, my turn to, uh, yeah. And you get, you know, which chart should I use? I go, now, wait a minute. Because people come up, well, when is that assumption not correct? They come up, you know, what if I'm on the moon and it's the second Tuesday of the week? And I go, tell me the situation you're trying to improve here. Do you have any data on it? And can you show me a time plot of this data? Now we'll talk about which yeah. chart to use. And 99% of the time, it's going to be the XMR. Yeah. 
So can you, let, let's go back, maybe talk a little bit more about Dr. Deming. You know, it's been 25 years yep. since he passed away. You know, in a lot of ways, you, you look back at his 14 points and different um, recommendations. And some companies, large companies, even GE, uh, are, they're doing away with the traditional annual performance review cycle. Um, GE, thankfully, has already long gotten rid of the old fire the bottom 10% rank and yank system, which, which even Jack Welch now um, uh, has, has disowned. Um, you know, so is that an example of where Dr. Deming was ahead of his time and, and the world may catch up or, or is, you know, he seems to have been fairly marginalized. Is, is that? Yeah, I mean, was he ahead of his time? I bet you there were other people espousing that. Um, and the thing is, you know, with the Deming, I went to a conference. In fact, um, it was like toward the end of Deming's life, it was in Minneapolis. And they had a professor on the panel and people were trying to pin him down on the 14 points. Well, what should you start with? And which are more important? And uh, can some be put aside for now? And he would just smile. And every single answer he gave was all of them. <laughs> yeah, but you don't understand. Blah, blah, blah. Which ones? He go, all of them. And after about the fifth question, he went, all of them, all of them, all of them. They're a synergistic system. Mm -hmm. So that's like someone saying, you know, looking at Deming points. Oh, he says we should, shouldn't have inspections. All right, we're going to stop all inspections tomorrow. That's suicide. Right. Manufacturer. Right. Oh, we're not going to have performance appraisals. Well, wait a minute. So what are you going to replace it with? You know, what isn't that by not having, by having performance appraisals, what goals doesn't that allow us to attain? It's not connected to anything. And, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because, and that was sort of my aha as a statistician. Deming started off teaching statistics to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. But then when he tried it in America, he came across all this management thing. So he kind of empirically came up with his 14 points. Then all of a sudden, after a little more study, it's sort of an empirical version of the system of profound knowledge. And it sort of, it was developed actually in a natural way that, wait a minute, that all comes out of these four months. That was the underlying theory where the 14 points were kind of empirical elements manifesting, you know, for the theory. Right. So it took a while for him to do this. It's taken me, what, I got exposed to Deming in 83. I didn't even begin to understand how it hit the real world till 88 with Hero. And only when I wrote my book a couple of years ago, 35 years of study, of learning. And when I sat down to do that book, Mark, the 400 pages came out of me in a white heat, all integrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, Dr. Deming was hugely influ influential on Toyota. Toyota leaders would say that. Yes. Um, Toyota, I don't think, follows all of the 14 points, but they were influenced by, by, by Dr. Deming, and they, they, they give credit for that. But, you know, Toyota does describe the Toyota production system and the Toyota Way management system as an integrated system. Yes. They use those terms, and people get in trouble when they try to copy, pick and choose. Well, I like that part of it, but not that part. And then they wonder why it, it's not as effective as that integrated system. It really shouldn't be a surprise, right? Or it can cause disaster, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, okay. cease yeah. inspection. And I mean, right. I have a saying in my work, you can't be a little bit pregnant about Deming. 
So you, you, know, you mentioned when you first learned about Dr. Deming and where you used the word gadfly. And you know, I've, I've kind of thought back, being exposed to, to Deming and Wheeler, it puts you out of sync with the rest of your organization or potentially your boss or you know, with others who haven't, I, I would say, have, haven't had the good fortune to be exposed to these ideas. And there are times where I've other, said- other, it's, other statisticians look at me as pariah. <laughs> uh, oh, so, so we've gone from gadfly to pariah. That's, uh, that's not a, that's a difference there. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, but anyway, I've, I've said, it, you know, it's, it's, it's both the best thing and the worst thing I've ever been exposed to because I could be going through life much happier and less frustrated if I'd never been exposed to some of these concepts. I could go into an organization and say, okay, lean daily management system. You set a target. If it's better than target, it's green. And if it's worse, it's red. And just put all these red and greens and maybe a yellow. And let's fight about whether there should be yellow. Like people would eat that up. <laughs> but I don't think that's effective. No, I, I look at it this way, Mark. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm naive and um, my business has tapered way off. I mean, it's like, um, I'm living life awake and enjoying it a heck of a lot. I'm not a, I'm not a victim of the system, hmm. you know? So you would put learning a lot of this more in the best thing that ever happened category. Yes, I would actually. Um, and I'm a better consultant for it if people want it. And I consult more simply with fewer tools. And I understand the cultural aspects which is very, very non-trivial. Yeah. Well, you talk about simple approaches. Um, you know, last week, Dr. Wheeler kept coming back to Deming's questions of, what are you trying to accomplish? By what method? And how will you know? Yeah. I mean, most anything when you talk about in terms of, of lean, or, you know, somebody says, oh, we want to implement a lean management system. Well, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. The goal shouldn't be to implement a lean management system. What are you trying to accomplish? lean management system might be part of the method for how we're going to get there. And then there's that question of how will we know? Let's not cherry pick a couple data points that prove right. things are better. Or let's not add up $180 million of Six Sigma projects um, with that, you know, where we don't see the impact on the bottom line. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the other thing is, you know, you, you get waste out of a, by finding hidden special causes through a common cause strategy. I mean, that was the other thing um, I, th I think you and I probably got in trouble about that was that, you know, the prevailing tyranny of Western management, that, that one, boy, that one still comes out of Demingites. And um, see, it's common cause, it's all management's fault, uh, or it is sometimes taught if it's common cause, you need a process redesign. That is not necessarily true. There are common cause strategies where you can find hidden special causes that have been there all along and you've tolerated. And then people tout, well, look at this return on investment. Look at this savings. And all Deming would say is you got your process to where it should have been all along. That's not improvement. And that rate, that rate of return won't continue. Yeah. It's the idea of what the, the one expression, um, putting out the house fire is not improving the neighborhood. Right. Um, but can you talk more about or give an example when you, when you talk about hidden special causes? Yeah. Um, 
one way I like to do it is a lot of times we look at um, aggregated performance of a department. And I'm going to be very, uh, I, I had this um, one about guideline compliance in a, in a five state area. And uh, it was consistently say they, they got it from 50% say to um, 60, 65%. But they had a goal of 75. And I plotted the performance every month and it was common cause, you know, within the 65. Right. Well, when you say, okay, here's what people don't realize. Common cause is bad news and good news. Bad news is common cause. Good news, if it's common cause, I can aggregate a stable period. So let's say I aggregate, you know, um, for each clinic on the, on the compliance on the guideline, I aggregate their last 50 non-compliances. Now, bundles are hot these days. And say there are seven elements to the bundle. So I take, every non, I take 50 non-compliances to put them on the same scale. And then say, all right, I'm going to take each non-compliance and which element or elements of the bundle weren't followed. Mm -hmm. And I find two whopping special, special causes. One is one clinic, but when you look further, it was only on one of the bundle elements. No one else was having trouble with it. And the rest of this department's work was excellent. The knowledge is in the system to fix that and given their performance, they're going to fix it right off. Meanwhile, there's another clinic that has a high number, but there's no pattern in the numbers, which is saying they're having trouble with the guideline implementation process. But there's knowledge in the system that says it can be done. And then you notice, say, element five of the bundle, they're all having trouble with it. And that says this system is perfectly designed not to be compliant with element five. Something has to be done to, for everyone's sake to do this, not, hey, you're lousy on bundle element five, everybody. Be more careful about it. Be more attentive to it. Mm -hmm. And by doing those three pockets of special cause, you're going to bump that needle. But unless I did it that way, that second department would continue to make that mistake that was easily correctable. That other location would continue to nickel and dime me with bad implementation and everyone would continue to make that mistake. That's what Duran called um, cutting new windows on the process. Hmm. That you have to dissect it a little bit. High level though, to find the 20% of the process causing 80% of your problem. I've told you Duran was a very big influence. And I was at one conference actually where a nurse had a big aha. She said, Davis, I'm like that department that has a problem with one element of a bundle. And I said, explain to me. Well, there's this big thing with pressure sores, as you know. Mm -hmm. And she said, Davis, I'm getting dinged for not implementing the pressure sore protocol properly. She said, Davis, some of my patients don't have legs. Uh -huh. So I can't put the restraint or the bands they want me to put on it. Now you get into operational definitions, et cetera, but right. Right. I've exposed a different process. See, we always assume when we expose variation that it's the methods. 
it could be something in the process. What in the process makes everyone make have trouble with bundle element five? What is bad about the implementation process that this facility can't do it and the other six can't? And, and a lot of what you're talking about here, I mean, this is not, I, you know, I, it, it, it's not so much statistics as it is problem solving and investigation yes. using statistics, right? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm separating out variation. I mean, that's statistics, isn't it? When you come right down to it. But it was after I saw that it was common cause that I could aggregate a stable period. Because see, it wouldn't make sense to mix in the performance of when they were 65% with the defects they had or the non-compliance that they had when they were at 50%. They're two different processes. And I think that was a huge aha for me. Yeah. Um, let's see. So let, let, let's, there's so much we talk about. Let, let's talk about your book a little bit more uh, okay. that you mentioned, Data Sanity. Um, so if we're talking, if you're proposing um, things that will create more sanity, what, what are some of the top examples of organizational insanity or process insanity or improvement insanity that you see? Yeah, well, Mark, you know, and I, I think you and I have talked about this. The biggest one, if Lean would only look at the everyday use of data as a process. Um, some research, Mark Graham Brown, who I think you respect as well, because I saw you mention him in one of your articles. Mm -hmm. I like his work too. He said 50% of executive time with meetings involving data is waste. Middle managers waste one hour a day pouring over useless operational reports, 60% mm -hmm. of which are waste. Now, you could convert the execs meeting time, time salary, times benefits, every middle manager, one hour a day, you know, time salary, times benefits, right. the red, yellow, green target meetings, mm -hmm. salary benefits, that is going to be a whopping number. Right. And, that's the, and then not only that, it's the behavioral waste mm -hmm. that the meetings cause and the tampering. The and all I'm saying is, mm -hmm. you know, use the Pareto principle. What are the 20% of the numbers causing 80% of the sweat and plot them and start doing something as simple as what I just told you, you know, common cause. Well, aggregate a stable period. Can we break it apart? And so on. And I had a panel, I did a seminar, an all-day seminar for the Idaho Hospital Association a couple of weeks ago, which in essence, I was able to present my book in a day without calling it that. But I did the behavioral stuff and basic data sanity. And at the end of the day, I knew there were executives in the room. I had an executive panel up there. And I threw up some data sets. I threw up real data on infection rates, um, um, HCAP scores, et cetera. And I threw them up and I said, all right, what, what did you used to do? And I got humility and kind of deep reflection. And they said, we're doing it wrong. And I said, okay. Now, I looked at, because you experienced this too, I'm sure. I looked at the audience, you know, 300 of them. And I'm saying, will you guys stop being victims and saying how much quality is so misunderstood. 
I said, your job is to get these guys results that make them look good. And I said to the execs, and your job, now that you understand this, is to create the time for these folks and remove any barriers they encounter. I say, do you see? I have given you a language. Hmm. And I also taught them John Miller's QBQ, the question behind the question, which yeah. I threaded the day with because we're, we're, we're inundated with victim behavior, inundated with it. And it's a matter of, look, all right, you're complaining. What action are you going to take about it? But I've also given them the language where they can dialogue about it. Well, I need to do this, but I have this barrier. And then the executive can say, okay, I see you're willing to do that. Let me remove that barrier. I want you to succeed. And then that gets into the kind of the, uh, um, you know, intrinsic motivation and joy in work. Because yeah. I find right now in these oppressive environments, you know, joy in paycheck trumps joy in work. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. So when, when you talk about, um, you know, victim behaviors, that come back to what, you talked about earlier your interest in what, what you described as cultural psychology. Yes. And I think um, there are a couple ways I come at it in the book. Uh, John Miller's book, Question Behind the... Now, I have no commercial interest in this. I want to make it clear. John is one of the finest human beings I've ever met. He's got a simple book, Question Behind the Question. Take you 45 minutes to read. And it's very profound. And at the end of it, John has in his last chapter, he said, isn't this the best book everybody else should read? And he said, if that's what you're saying, go back and read it again. I've read it mm. a half dozen times. <laughs> and he really gets the concept of personal accountability, that when you're going to ask, well, who's going to, or someone should, or why doesn't, who, why, when? He said, replace it with a question beginning with what or how. It includes the word I and has an action. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, I, and then I knew one CEO who would use it to back people into a corner to do a what or how I action for something they have no control over. And he'd say, oh, do it, do it. Mm-hmm. And then I say, and I talk to the execs, I say, when someone has the courage to do that, you have to say, what can I do to support you in that? It's taking, you know, once again, it's a mutual responsibility. And how can I help you follow up on that to make sure the loop is closed? And the hidden agenda, helping them succeed. So if someone does a responsible, appropriate, what or how I action question in response to a situation, then it's up to the manager to make sure they succeed. What does that do for culture? And then, you know, yeah. you also know, I write about these things called demotivators. I think Dean Spitzer's book on that is, is brilliant. The concept of demotivators is brilliant. And um, I talked to Dean. I said, Dean, I'm going to add one more demotivator, data insanity. Mm. Yeah. So that well, was and- my whole day at that set that Ida was about. I did culture. I did behavioral model. Um, you know, don't, don't start telling people, to, to, to change if it's not linked to anything. You know, everybody needs therapy, okay? But what you have to do is do it in the moment and say, look, this behavior you exhibited at the meeting is not in line with our goals, our mission, and you won't be successful. 
how can I help you work with that? Yeah. See, so I create the QBQ as an expectation so people don't take it as an attack and become defensive. So, uh, and then it's a matter of couch all feedback in terms of company success, per, their personal success. Takes the turf out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that, easier said than done, but, you know, and I said to the executives, uh, but you need three to five clear goals every year to coach toward that. If there's, if there's no anchor for this, you know, and I said, you may not even know what they are right now, but if you do data sanity on the 20% of the numbers that make you sweat, you're going to find out what they are and you may not like it because they're so all over the place. Yeah. So see, I always go back to the data sanity, the 20% of the numbers that cause 80% of the perspiration. Yeah. So, um, going back actually to my book in kind of a nutshell, you've kind of glanced at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let me talk more about data. And, you know, you, you said a couple of minutes ago, you know, if Lean would look at data as a process and, you know, Toyota. The organizational uh, use of data, and that includes all levels. Yeah. And, you know, so I've told a story, you know, before where uh, first time I went to the Toyota plant in San Antonio, it was a group of, of people who were interested in Lean and Six Sigma and what have you. And one of the people on the tour asked the employee at the end, this is a guy who I'm pretty sure would describe himself as a lean Six Sigma master black belt. And so, you know, he asked, well, does Toyota use Six Sigma? And the, the tour guide, who was a Toyota team member, um, you know, frontline production worker, um, said, no, but we teach everybody the seven basic quality control tools, and we, we encourage everybody to use those. So this is going back to the TQM era of, of these statistical tools, including Pareto charts and control charts. And, you know, I think a lot of people would sniff and say like, well, uh, how, how can Toyota get quality without Six Sigma? Or, you know, there's, there's misperceptions. I've heard people say, oh, lean is good for qualitative problems, but it's great that Six Sigma uses data. And I think there's just all these sort of, you know, falsehoods that get thrown around that make me cringe or make me write an angry blog post. But Well, I remember, Mark, um, you referred to a blog of mine on LinkedIn, and I know it got a lot of traffic after you did, where I said, you know, TQM, CQI, Lean, Six Sigma, Lean, they're all the same. They're all the same. They come out of sound process thinking. And it was actually in Joyner's first edition of the team handbook back in the 80s. Yeah. You know, the seven problems with the process. Inadequate knowledge of customer needs, inadequate knowledge of how the process currently works, inadequate knowledge of how it should work. People make errors and mistakes in executing the procedures. Um, there are no preventive measures to prevent the mistakes. Then you have the inventory buffers, wasted processes, wasted data, and then you have the everyday variation in inputs and outputs. Those are the seven problems with the process. What a roadmap. And, and there's, you know, I think parallels in what you were saying there to what, it's not a perfect match, but what Steve Spear wrote about in his article of, you know, studying Toyota and describing what he calls the rules in use um, around um, 
you know, are activities clearly defined? Are there binary connections? Are there clear pathways? I've heard former Toya to say, like, oh, you know, my, my sensei said there's only, uh, or uh, I'll give credit to uh, Andre de Marchand, who I've talked to on the podcast. And he probably told the story that his sensei would say there's only two root causes, um, see if I'm getting this right, um, no management or bad management. And I don't think you're saying bad managers, but I think of like no, no, no. management of the process or, well, you know, there, there's Mark, similarities in, in these different kind of truisms. Oh, for goodness sakes. Yes. And, you, and I'm bringing this up because you're going to laugh. It's something we both encounter. People are knee deep in root cause analyses. You know, never events. That's, that's you know, anathema to execs now because they got to pay for them. And they just say everyone will have a root cause analysis. Well, once you understand process thinking, and, and I think Lucian Leaps, brilliant, brilliant editorial. It's 20 years old, and I don't care. It's still excellent. But a nurse who got 10 times her chemotherapy overdose, that was waiting to happen. And everything in the process that could go wrong went wrong. Mm -hmm. Like the day you get all the red lights on the way to work. It was waiting to happen. Tick, 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 tick. And it did. There were so many breakdowns. And regardless of who was on, they had the 19 people in the room, just would have been another 19 people. And I go to these root cause analysis workshops where they hand out a scenario. And, oh my God, it was this horrible thing happened. And I can hear the tutting in the room and said, well, I wouldn't have made such a stupid decision. And I'll say to that person, so why did it make sense for that person to make that decision at that time? That's culture. Yeah. And that really stops them in their tracks. Yeah. Well, so like, can I just very quickly, like yeah. I said before, so you can plot your never events and do what I did before with the guideline compliance. Let's take the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, put them together and pull them apart to find the 20% of the issues causing 80% of these, but they treat everyone as a special cause. Yeah. Well, and that, that's, that comes back to um, control charts or process behavior charts of, you know, people learn root cause analysis methods and then misapply them looking for a root cause for a noise data point. There's no special cause of this common cause variation. And, you know, people could ask a hundred whys and still not be any closer to having uh, a realistic explanation, you know, of that obsessive question about why was last week's performance worse? Yeah. Or, or no even, when I know, in the case of one, a never event, mm -hmm. and they treat it as a special cause. See, if something doesn't go right, that's variation. And mm -hmm. I, I got this from Joyner, saying you can even look at an individual event and say, was this a common cause or a special cause? In other words, are we perfectly designed to have this occur? And I'm not being flippant. It really pisses CEOs off when I say that. But I go, listen, I'm not saying, I'm not being flippant. What I'm saying is it takes a different strategy if you're going to fix it. All you'll do yes. is add more complexity with no value. Right. I think, yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. It takes a different strategy. Um, looking and saying, well, we, we've got a predictable process. The metric is just fluctuating. doesn't mean we have to accept that. No. We can work to improve the system in a way other than asking what went wrong last month. Yeah. And, you know, they're very smart people. They'll find reasons. Yeah. 
Well, that's why I love the, the Wheeler phrase, writing fiction. Yes. You, you can cook up a story and if wait long enough, performance will fluctuate back to a slightly better number. You know, I, uh, once I teach common cause strategies, I teach my students a phrase because I'll put up something and there'll be a blip and I'll throw a tantrum and I'll, I'll point at someone randomly and say, what are you going to do about it? And I got them to say, I'm on it. Yeah. And I say, um, and you do this in the privacy of your office. I say, feed the beast, but here's what you do in the privacy of your office. And when that blip makes a major needle jump, now you have a back door to explain this funny new statistical way. Yeah. Well, you, know, you talk about, you know, a, a never event, you know, uh, if, it, if it's happening often enough and the number of those events is fluctuating within a range, um, let's say if you have, you know, I'm just going to make up numbers, um, four falls per week there's a temptation to say, well, we need to investigate every single one. It's a sentinel event. We need to look for the, the root cause of that fall. But I think what I'm hearing you saying, I think what we're in agreement is, well, there's a system that's perfectly designed to generate between, let's say the, the lower and upper control limits are zero and seven. Well, it's zero to 10 actually. Yeah. So um, we need to improve the system which might look at saying, well, you know, uh, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a totally different line, train of thought uh, than just digging into a single event. You need right. to and you know what it also says? contributors. I'm sorry? It also says after 10 weeks, you're going to have 40 falls to slice and dice. Yeah. Would you, and I say to them, would you rather work with 50 or one? And the group goes, 50. You know, time of day age of patient, sex of patient, were they on meds, do they have dementia? I mean, all kinds of, I said, that's where you're smart. I don't want you explaining why we had eight versus two. I said, I wanna put your brains, how can I slice and dice these 40 balls? That's a good use of your energy. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um... Well, I've got a whole list of questions here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot and say, let's do another one of these sometime soon because there's a whole okay. branch of questions and things from your book of different quotes around process, improvement, leading the transformation of an organization. Can I, can I sign you up to come back and Well, of course talk you about can. And, and if your listeners agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that uh, they'll find that a good use of their time and hopefully click play. Uh, again on uh, another episode, but um, you know, for, for people who have not seen your book, your website, where would you point people to find, uh, learn more about data sanity, the book to learn more about your, your, your work, go ahead and plug um, oh. website and Twitter or what have you. Well, my website is davisdatasanity.com. There's information on my book. You can, um, um, Let's see, I think you can download the table of contents and introduction. Uh, you can also do that on LinkedIn. I have 48 articles on LinkedIn, but I'm also, another thing you can do if you're more interested is uh, just Google Quality Digest Balistrachi Archive, and it takes you to all the articles I've written for Quality Digest over 10 years. And, if so, there, and there, there's a lot there, and I've read a lot of it. Um, if 
people are uncertain about spelling balistrachi. Google, <laughs> or typing Quality Digest Davis B, it'll fill in the rest. Right? Okay, there you go. <laughs> From someone who knows. That's my, my pro tip for using the Google machine. <laughs> and I do articles on culture, leadership, statistics. I was their statistical columnist for like, I don't know, five to seven years. Um, so there's, there are, if you just want statistics, you can get that too. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of great stuff there. So I encourage well, thank you Mark. Um, to go and, uh, and, and check that out. So um, Davis, thank you so much for um, being a guest on the podcast. I feel like it's overdue. I feel like I should have had you on before, but I'm glad we had the opportunity today and I'll look forward to doing this again. Can I, can I do one more thing? Uh, it, yeah. It's a semi book plug. Because if you'll notice, my book was reviewed in Quality Digest, as was Mark's. Yeah. And as a friend of mine said, he said, it's not a matter of one or the other. You need both of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I want that's and, and, you know, Mark, I, that's also a nod to, uh, to your excellent work. Yeah, your book, for, for the uninitiated, your book is superb. Um, well, well, thank you. And it's admittedly not a deep dive that that books like yours and, and Don Wheeler's understanding statistical process control. There, there are certainly deeper dives, but you know, I'm trying to help open people's eyes. That's right. Um, to some of the potential of um, process behavior charts. And, and, and you do it well, but if you know, we get to the, uh, well, I don't want to be a little bit pregnant about this. Well, then there's mine. <laughs> so. All right. Well, again, our, our guest has been Davis Balistrachi. I encourage you to go. Um, uh, find his book, find his website, read his Quality Digest articles. Um, you'll, you'll learn a lot. It's, re it's really engaging and, um, uh, I'll dare say, entertaining at the same time as being educational. So, Davis, thank you so much for uh, being the guest today. Well, thank you, Mark. It's, it's been my pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.